0: Pauline, give me some of your tots. Raven's egg, blood of a hen. A blood. I ate his liver with some father beans. Nice candy. pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hello again, and welcome to The Cooking Show. I'm your host, Bob. And today, this is actually, this is a fun recipe that we're going to talk about today because... It combines a little bit of that childhood nostalgia with a dish that is rooted pretty firmly in a historical context. And this is one of those things where you can take a modern incarnation of a dish and look at what circumstances brought it into being to begin with to inform your Uh, What would you say crafting of the recipe to have as authentic a flavor or just the feel that you get from food? Like you can you can you can look at like, why does this dish exist and then try to recreate or make decisions on ingredients to stay? I don't want to say like stay true to the tradition because we're completely removed from it, but to uh, to come as close to the original vision for it as as you reasonably can okay now why is this nostalgic for me Well, we'll talk about what it is in a moment but uh so i am a child of the 80s and 90s you know i was born in the early 80s so i'm kind of an older millennial and growing up my mother had a couple of recipes like tried and true like at any any random point in time we can whip this up you know it's Things like tuna noodle casserole or city chicken. You remember that one? City chicken? uh, Beef stroganoff. And chicken cacciatore. And that's what we're doing this week is chicken cacciatore. And I'm thinking that, you know, people within a couple years of my age may have the same sort of pleasant childhood memories of, of a dish like this. I don't think it was that outside the scope of what other people of my peers would have been eating but then also i might be able to tap into some of the nostalgia of the gen x crowd who would have been making this for their children in the late 80s or early 90s uh chicken cacciatore cacciatore is the italian moniker for hunter style or as in you know with in german it's the jaeger uh what would you call it a prefix or a descriptor or whatever? Like Jägermeister, Jäger style is a hunter style or soldier style. And what it generally, when it's applied or tacked on to a dish, it's denoting a, a rustic preparation, either utilizing ingredients that could travel with soldiers on campaign or or can be made from ingredients foraged from the environment. You know, it's sort of like a survival, survivalist sort of food. You know, these would be the MREs of the 16th century or, or 16th to 16th century to present. And, you know, it's essentially a braised chicken in a red sauce with roughly chopped mushrooms and peppers, and onions, uh, you know, big, bold flavors, red wine, salt, pepper, garlic, Basil oregano, like simple classically Italian. Uh, foods and when I say classically Italian, I mean like classically Italian American, in that it's red sauce and poultry, and it's often served over pasta. Or you know, if you're if you're a more refined soldier on campaign, it might be risotto. And obviously, online recipes will suggest mashed potatoes, which is, seems like a bridge too far. But whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, whenever you hear uh, something as being like a, a classic Italian dish or an Italian dish rooted in a specific historical context, like there's a, there's a use case for this, you know, soldiers on campaign, for example. You know, my mind immediately jumps to like, oh my God, is this, is this something that would have been consumed by Roman legions in the field? And in the case of Cacciatore, absolutely not. Because let's think about this. Um, the main ingredients, tomatoes, bell peppers, yeah, you know, sometimes you'd you might you might add a little uh, panache, a little bit of fire to the sauce with some uh, uh, chili peppers. You know, to imbue a little bit of heat in there. Uh, these are all New World ingredients that could not have existed in Italian cuisine prior to I mean, as a as an absolute line of demarcation, 1492. But in reality, it's closer to like 1500 or you know, the, a couple years after the, the the turn of the 16th century, because you need time for these ingredients to kind of propagate from Spain and Italy and Portugal into mm, Central Europe and North Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So this is definitely um, You know, we're out of the the medieval period. We're into the Renaissance. We're into you know the 16th century, 17th century, et cetera, et cetera. Still, certainly a prime time for rustic in the field food preparation, but it's not an ancient recipe, so to speak. Okay, so let's get into chicken cacciatore, and we'll talk about making some decisions about specific ingredients in order to get uh, as much authenticity from this as possible. You know, you check the show notes. I'll have the, the photo album, the imager album there for the step-by-step pictorial. Uh, I can't imagine that we're going to have any special ingredients or special equipment for this because kind of the point of it is to use as common ingredients as possible uh, to make something that is uh, really delicious and forgiving in terms of, you know, the preparation. It's sort of a set-it-forget-it and crockpot meal of 400 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, if you look a, look up a recipe online, um, most of them, I'm going to say, are probably going to suggest using chicken thighs. And that makes sense. Uh, the chicken thigh certainly is, it's very flavorful. It's uh, forgiving. It's easy to cook. It's going to have a little bit more fat content, a little bit more connective tissue, but it's still going to be very pliable and uh, tasty you're free to go with chicken thighs if you want um i specifically chose chicken drumsticks for a couple of reasons number one okay if you're if you're buying chicken from the grocery store today it's almost certainly going to be a cornish cross chicken harvested between seven and eleven weeks of age and it's sort of in the prime of its um, body composition to to tenderness, and uh, you know, like the the it it will have grown as as big as it can, as efficiently as possible at that point. And beyond that point, it will grow larger, but it will cost a lot and in feed inputs to get it there. So, you know, basically, once you hit that sweet spot with this modern breed of chicken, uh, you can harvest it, and, and every one of them is going to be tender and consistent, more or less. I mean. You know, there are there are some exceptions where you get like what's called woodiness of the breast meat, which is a, kind of a genetic flaw that you can have. But if you're thinking about how, how this dish would have come together 300 years ago, it almost certainly would have been from culled roosters or retired laying hens, essentially stewing birds, like older birds that uh, don't have an ongoing economic value and when i say economic i mean not necessarily monetary but an economy of calories like you're not going to be harvesting a hen that will lay you know an egg every day every other day for a considerable amount of time to make one meal today because that that other you know that actively laying hen will sustain you maybe to a slightly lower uh, lower extent as far as calories and macronutrients or whatever But it will sustain you for a much longer period of time by providing you with eggs on a regular basis. So if you're limiting your meat birds to either juvenile roosters, uh, mature roosters, or uh, really mature laying hens, you're going to give up a lot of tenderness and uh, pleasant mouthfeel that comes with very little labor. Um, In exchange for wonderful flavor, flavor and texture, texture of the sauce through the rendering of fat, through the breaking down of collagen and connective tissue, and from, you know, extracting minerals and and, some small amount of marrow or whatever from bones, that is going to, hey, with the theme of the show, it's going to make the final dish greater than the sum of its parts. You can get, you can, you can achieve the same level of tenderness through a long, slow braising process, but simply getting it to the same mouth feel is going to have knock-on effects for flavor that are above and beyond what you would get from modern farmed poultry, okay? So while a lot of recipes will tell you to use bone-in skin on chicken breasts, or not chicken breasts, chicken thighs, I'm purposely choosing chicken drumsticks from, from my chickens, some of which would have been older birds, some of which would have been younger birds. But the, the point is that it will be a, a tougher cut of meat, so to speak, initially. Um, but by the time it's done cooking, it will be fork tender. Okay, So that's your chicken component. Olive oil, naturally. I mean, we're talking about a, a, an Italian dish. Of course, there's going to be olive oil a red bell pepper, uh, chopped mushrooms. Now, what mushrooms are you going to use? Now, naturally in this time, in the historical context of the dish, they probably would have been dried mushrooms that would have been brought with them. Mushrooms, once they're dried out, they weigh very little. They can be compacted into a small package and they travel well. They rehydrate well. Dried mushrooms are wonderful. Or they could have just been mushrooms that would have been foraged in the field. Now, in that case, who knows what variety of mushroom would have been used. But, uh, you know, in our case, if you're going to use dried mushrooms, that's cool. You can use anything, whether it's oyster mushrooms or shiitakes or uh, cremini or whatever. I used uh, cremini mushrooms fresh, chopped up. In addition to that, we're going to use uh, onion, garlic, uh, whole canned tomatoes. And we'll maybe we'll talk about that briefly. Chicken broth, uh, dried oregano, fresh basil salt and pepper, and we're going to be serving this with pasta, and uh, hopefully we'll remember to talk about that choice as well. Now, let's go through these uh, these ingredients. The the bell pepper, um, you know, this is going to be, uh, add a little bit of sweetness and a depth of flavor to the sauce, so that the sauce isn't purely tomato and garlic. Uh, the bell pepper tends to Uh, lighten the flavor of the sauce a bit and the way that we're going to use a lot of these these vegetables um, there are two minds about this and I made one choice and I stick by it but you can definitely make a different choice when we get to actually putting all this together okay so with the mushrooms mushrooms this is going to add an earthy flavor a nice textural um, contrast uh, between the sort of smooth velvety uh, red sauce and the big chunks of pretty pliable, um, but definitely vegetative bell peppers. But then the mushrooms add sort of like a meatiness so that even in the bites, when you're not getting the meat from the chicken legs, You still have the opportunity to have a meaty mouthfeel um, by scooping up some of those mushrooms. The onion, just a natural flavor enhancer and aromatic, Uh, it's going to add a lot of great flavor. And they would have been there would have been wild alliums available to forage, and then of course mushrooms do, or not mushrooms, um, onions do keep and travel pretty well. Uh, the onion to the old world would be akin to like the potato of the new world where, you know, once they're harvested and sufficiently cured and stored properly, they can last a remarkably long time. Garlic, again, uh, this could have been foraged, uh, but it also keeps well and travels well, you know, in its uh, fresh state where where you cure the garlic bulbs and then they really don't take up a lot of space or weight. So they can be taken with you uh, the tomatoes now this is a dish that you know depending on the time of year or the ingredient choices that you can make and have kind of a, a spectrum of flavors and, and textures using a high quality like san marzano whole canned tomato it's wonderful you're getting a, a really high quality product it's going to probably create a sauce that is a little bit smoother, more velvety than if you used fresh tomatoes. Like, if we were making this dish in ju- the end of July, we would use fresh tomatoes, and while they would cook down and incorporate evenly, the same way that the canned tomatoes would, um, they're still going to have a brighter, fresher, maybe a little bit more acid-forward flavor, and it's going to uh, be qualitatively different, you know, between a a July preparation and a January preparation. Uh, We're going to use the chicken stock. I already have a bunch of chicken stock, uh, you know, frozen, canned, whatever, from from our chickens. But uh, imagine... You know, making this dish from quote unquote scratch where you don't have the chicken stock made already, you know, whereas, you know, one day you're cooking parts of the chicken in one way and then the next day you're going to make this cachetori. and then in, in the interim you're simmering a bunch of chicken carcasses and aromatics and whatever to produce the stock that would um, certainly have a subtle uh impact on the flavor of the dish as the end point of a multi-day process as opposed to putting the ingredients together and preparing everything within a single day all right the dried oregano uh, again if we were in the summer we'd probably use fresh dry herbs you add them early in the cooking process so that you can extract all the flavor from it so that they, they get rehydrated and fully incorporated the reason we used fresh basil instead of dry basil is because then you have a nice garnish at the end. Um, we did add some of the basil at the beginning of the cooking process just to have that basil flavor incorporated through all the layers of the sauce. Um, but primarily, we saved the basil as a garnish for the end. I mean, it's a general rule of thumb. If you're using dry herbs, add them early and cook you know the entirety of the period with them. Fresh herbs, add them at the end because they're the most vibrant and flavorful and aromatic at that time. So that's that Uh, kosher salt and black pepper would have been uh, black pepper would have been a little, a little more rarefied at the time, but salt certainly would have been available. And, you know, if you didn't have the pepper, you could use other spices that are similar or at least uh, add a, a peppery flavor, but, yeah, you d- definitely would have that. Um, now, we did go with the uh, pasta. We went with just a thin spaghetti. You might, you know, ideally maybe a spaghetti rigati. you know, spaghetti that has ridges, that adds a little bit more texture. I wanted to minimize the pasta aspect of the dish to focus on the preparation of the sauce and the chicken. But, you know, traditionally you know, this would be served with pasta or risotto or as i mean i guess maybe it's not traditional but it's certainly as popular with online recipes the aforementioned mashed potato you know thinking about how this dish would have been prepared in the field in the rustic setting a long time ago in a galaxy far far away i feel like um tending a giant pan of risotto is a big ask you know maybe maybe in town you know whenever you go back to the uh the soldier-owned um, pasta and stew restaurant. Maybe they would use risotto because you have the additional time and the attention to devote to you know, tending a big pan of risotto, tossing it, and adding the warm stock and the wine and everything like that. I feel like that's a, that's a stretch in the field. It would be much more reasonable for dried pasta to be boiled quickly and then consumed with the rest of this. All right. That's why we went with that choice. I also specifically wanted a spaghetti-style pasta because, you know, different pasta shapes lend themselves to different uh, mechanics. That might not be the right word, but, you know, what I was thinking of is this is a dish with, like, three layers. You have the the pasta, you have the sauce, and you have the protein. You have the, the braised poultry. And ideally, you know, the ideal bite would have... Um, The pasta, the sauce, and the poultry, it would be all like one unit, kind of like producing an amuse-bouche, you know, a single forkful that encompasses the entirety of the dish so that you get the full experience. And it seemed like it would be a lot easier to have a twirl of pasta on a fork, sauce draped over it, imbued within the strands, you know, intermingling with all the pasta and everything. And then to have a piece of the braised chicken on the end of the fork as like an end cap holding it all together and then you get the full experience in one bite Um, if you move up to something like uh like rigatoni or ziti or penne you know like a tube pasta even like a penne rigate with the with the ridges around the outside it will hold the sauce very well but I feel like it's definitely gonna throw off the pasta to sauce to, to protein ratio of that, you know, idealized bite. And then you get into, I mean, I don't know all the shapes of pasta something you have that are shaped not unlike egg noodles, but they're not necessarily an egg noodle. It's still a regular pasta, but it's just flat and curly. Um, that is uh, definitely appealing, but uh, usually when you get into these, these wider, more voluminous uh, pieces of pasta, you can never, you never get as much of it on the fork as you expect that you would be able to. And I feel like that would be a little bit uh, frustrating. And this is, you know, whenever you're preparing food, a lot of times you should have at least part of your mind devoted to, you know, I guess the software would be uh, UX, user experience, or UI, user interface. Um, But how how the the consumer of the product is going to experience it? Like, what is the ideal use case? Like, how would you if one if somebody could get one bite of your food, how would you want them to experience that bite of food? You know, you know, with a dessert, it might be, you know, uh, a piece of cake on the fork with. You know, perfectly, barely frozen ice cream, like just at that at that intermediary part of being melted and being frozen, you know, just the right proportions of each. And then you get the full experience. And you think about that with uh, with a dish and you put it together with that in mind. Otherwise, you know, it might, it might be beautiful. It might taste delicious, but it's just you don't want that little nagging frustration of like, I just can't get onto my fork what I want to put in my mouth. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else thinks about this, this stuff or not, but whatever. All right, so let's get to actually uh, cooking this dish. This you know, harkens back, you know, with all these um, long, like, slow-cooked comfort food poultry dishes it starts off with the browning the chicken and then removing it to another vessel to hold for a while while you put everything else together and the main reason for that is to build the flavors of the the sauce like the layers up from the initial browning of the chicken but also to minimize the number of uh, pots and pans that you're going to be producing Uh, we could do this with a thousand different sauce pans and saute pans and pasta pots or whatever um, but it all has to come together at the end. So if we can build it in a single, you know, in this case a cast iron Dutch oven, great. All right. So we start off by taking our chicken legs in this case and dredging them in flour and seasoning them with salt and pepper. I think I seasoned them with salt and pepper first and then dredge them with flour. And then, you know, adding your olive oil to the bottom of your of your cooking vessel and in this case. Like I said, it's an enameled cast iron Dutch oven. Get that nice and hot and lay those chicken pieces in there. If you have too many of them, you might have to do this in shifts. I think I did four at a time, a total of eight and two to three minutes on each side, just to brown and crust up the, the flour that is clinging to the skin of the chicken legs, and then remove those to a platter or a plate or something like that to hold them until a little bit later. And then what you're going to have is you're going to have a messy pot. You're going to have a pot with brown bits and, you know, a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of uh, chicken skin stuck to the bottom, some browned or blackened flour, some, some pepper and salt that has fallen off. You have fond in the bottom of your pot. Now, here is uh, maybe might be a point of contention. In some cases, people would say, well, to this, to this messy pot, you want to now add your chopped onions and garlic and uh, bell peppers, right? and brown those or sweat those or cook them down a little bit. My, my inclination here is to think about, all right, the sum total here, we are going to, we're going to be cooking this for a couple of hours. Uh, We're going to be reducing and homogenizing the sauce um, to an extent. A lot of the flavors are going to marry and incorporate during this long, slow braising period. I can more effectively deglaze my pan with the wine at this step rather than adding a bunch of vegetables, which then ideally I would then remove those and then deglaze the pan. But if I deglaze the pan now, I'm starting with a more a more robust uh, base of the sauce. Okay, so rather than browning, sweating, or pre-cooking the vegetables, I deglazed the pan immediately, thinking that I would make up for that by cooking all the flavor out of the vegetables in the sauce, and nobody would notice one way or the other. And i got to tell you, it was delicious, it was fantastic, I do not regret my choice whatsoever. So I'm saying deglaze your pan at this point, use a wooden spoon to scrape the browned bits of you know, mylard-reacted protein and fat and scorched flour off the bottom of the pan and get that incorporated into this hot, slightly reduced wine, and then add your chicken stock. The wine selection. Ah, So reading, reading up about, you know, the history of Cacciatore, it seems that in the northern part of the country, of Italy, it would have been more common to use white wine, particularly in a restaurant setting. Okay? Whereas in southern Italy, uh, red wine would be the standard wine for a cacciatore. And I was thinking that, you know, what, what wine would be most likely to be carried by someone making this in the field as, a, as it was designed? And I was thinking it's probably red wine. Red wine tends to age and mature um, in less than ideal uh, conditions a little better than white wine does. Um, white wine can certainly become sublime over a long period of time in the bottle, in the proper cellaring conditions. Certainly, red wine can suffer from poor conditions or being transferred in a, you know, a, a leather bladder slung over your back and, you know, ridden on a horse for hundreds of miles. But it just seems that I, I think that red wine would be more common um, in the field than white wine. And specifically since... You know, in the northern regions, uh, it, it it did specify that the white wine was preferred in the restaurant setting. So I used a red wine and I used a, a cheap red wine, a cheap red blend, because, you know, you're not carrying bottles of Chateau Petrou 1982, you know, a nice, very expensive Bordeaux <laughs> on your, uh, I don't know. On your uh, putting down the rebellion in northern Italy, so you would you would use a, a wine that maybe isn't quite as well rounded, isn't as as complex or sophisticated or refined uh it's going to have sweet notes it's going to have acidic notes it's going to have tannic notes it's going to have all those things and they're all going to be loud and conflicting with each other but then they're going to cook out and mellow down very nicely and you can see the brand the the label of the wine that i used in the photographs i don't remember off the top of my head little red riding hood is on the label it's a screw top it costs nine dollars it's not a big deal (laughs) all right so deglaze that uh cooking vessel at this point and then add the chicken stock um to have like a hot liquid base for the sauce to that all of the chopped vegetables are dumped in there and then the tomatoes are added you don't have to really spend a lot of time like crushing the tomatoes or chopping them god forbid or any in any way mechanically uh altering them because this is going to cook for a long time those tomatoes are going to break down they're going to kind of dissolve and uh, marry into the family so to speak they're going to uh, become fairly consistent over time now you can't you could you you could add uh carrot to this at this point for added sweetness i did not um you know you could even you could throw in some fennel root if you wanted like a an, an anise flavored background to it or something like that. I don't know. It's up to you. But so, yeah, so we get the, the, all the components of the sauce together and we let that simmer for a little bit just to sort of homogenize. And then all of the chicken legs are then returned to the pot and the pot is covered and it's turned down to a simmer. And then you forget about it. You forget about it for a couple of hours. Now, again, a lot of the recipes on online that you find for chicken cacciatore will have a cook time of 45 minutes to an hour. And that is fine if you are using a modern hybridized, uh, you know, mass-produced chicken because it's already going to be tender. You don't need to tenderize it through the cooking process. It's going to have a pleasant mouthfeel right out of the package more or less but if you are purposefully using a more challenging protein like chicken legs or like chicken legs from an older you know heritage breed animal or something like that you definitely want to give that three hours at least of braising time on that simmer now when it comes to the quantities that we're using in this recipe i will i will provide the quantities they'll be in the show notes in the in the written recipe and everything but i will tell you that i used much more wine than what the recipes call for. I use much more chicken stock than what a recipe calls for. And the reason is, uh, you know, for some reason, uh, when it comes to comfort foods, these long, slow cooked foods, the more you make, the bigger of a batch that you make, it does qualitatively. You know, this is a subjective thing is, uh, it tastes better. Why? Why? Why is it better to make a giant pot of chili as compared to making a single serving of chili? I feel it, that there's a little bit of maybe like cognitive dissonance uh, at play as to what needs to be done to a larger volume of food as compared to a smaller volume. Um, when you have a giant pot of something, uh, it takes a while for it to kind of homogenize the, the texture and the consistency so it'll seem more watery than what it actually would be so you you cook it more aggressively you simmer things longer maybe you go a little heavy with some of the measurements you know a pinch a pinch of salt becomes a dash of salt you know a, a teaspoon of something becomes a heaping teaspoon of something and just everything sort of um, gets magnified. You figure if if your margin of error is 5% and you're making one cup of something as opposed to a gallon of something, yes, it is uh, the same ratio of, you know, plus or minus. But if everything's erring on the side of being plus 5%, scaling it up to a gallon, you're going to have a lot more of certain ingredients and maybe they become a little bit more flavor forward or or whatever. I don't know. I would say err on the side of just adding more things, and if it's if it's too, if the sauce is too loose, if there's too much chicken stock, if there's too much wine, whatever, just simmer it uncovered for a period of time, either at the end or at the beginning or whatever, and cook off some of the water content. It will thicken up. It will it will come together and, and I don't want to say congeal, but it'll, (laughs) it'll, uh, you can cook off a lot of that water and concentrate those flavors and it'll be really good. So I, I mean, I'll tell you right now, this recipe is for, um, a quarter cup of chicken stock. And I used a quart, an entire quart of chicken stock. Why? Because my chicken stock is canned in quart jars and uh, I didn't want to put You know, three quarters of a quart jar of chicken stock back in the fridge. So I used all of it. I think for red wine, usually they're talking about like a half cup to a cup. I used a little bit more than half a bottle. But then there was open simmering at the end to reduce the stock a little or to reduce the sauce a little bit more and thicken it up. Additionally, you know, it's not part of the, you know, the initial bill of ingredients but at the very end if you mount your sauce with butter like a knob of butter two to four tablespoons throw it in at the bu- at the end let it melt and incorporate shake it around there a little bit that'll add a nice velvety uh mouth feel a nice uh, sheen like a nice glassy kind of look to the sauce it's really nice a nice little bit of refinement and you know i mean butter makes everything better so consider that as well okay all right so uh once that's yeah like what i said uh at least three hours of braising time and then if you need to if you need to reduce the sauce afterwards you can leave it uncovered and and let it go at a lively simmer until it uh looks the way that you would like it to look in preparing the pasta yeah cook it in heavily salted water for the prescribed amount of time and then definitely uh you want to toss it in some sauce if you need to add if you've thickened your sauce too much and you need to add a little bit of pasta water whatever you can do that i did you know pull out a uh, saucepan, add a couple cups of sauce to that toss the pasta in it before plating And then in plating it, it was just like a nice a nice little mound of twirled pasta with the sauce enveloping it and a couple of fork tender legs on top. And it was, it was wonderful. It was like definitely the flavors were reminiscent of that childhood dish. But, you know, you, you go back to that era of, you know, suburban home cooking. It was predominantly um, recreating classic dishes using really readily available inexpensive ingredients so there was a lot of casseroles that start off with like cream of mushroom soup and a can of tuna or canned chicken or you know a jar of prego uh, a a can of mushrooms and a pack of pick of the chick <laughs> chicken something like that um, which is not to say anything to cast any aspersions on the cooking styles of the 80s and 90s or anything like that but you know if you if you have a soft spot in your heart for those nostalgic dishes i think it's a it's a labor of love to recreate them in a way that you know sets them up yeah, you know, head and shoulders above what you remember it to be and to consider the context of what the dish was born out of and was born into. You know, it's, it's one thing, you know, the dish is born out of a particular time, a particular place, particular people, particular circumstances, but then it is born into a world of people who want and need and have demands for this dish. If not, it would not exist. And it's like reconciling those two things to get an idea or a feel of like what it's not, it's not just, you're not just recreating a painting by looking at the painting and painting what you see. It's, it's understanding what this painting is supposed to, uh, was supposed to be what at its essence and, um, you know, trying to capture all that results in a very good, a very good product at the end. It's sort of like, you know, when you, when you really understand a dish, it can be greater than the sum of its parts. I'm going to try to incorporate that into as many episodes as possible. But anyway, yeah, it's this week, chicken cacciatore. Check out the pictures in the Imager album. Definitely make this for yourself, man. This is fantastic. It's delicious. It's like it has that uh, rustic flavor, rustic texture, but classic Italian flavors. Um, you know, the basil, the garlic, the tomatoes, all this stuff. Pasta. Oh, my. It's really, it's really wonderful. It's the best of every world, old world, new world, days of your optimistic days ahead. <laughs> Enjoy it. Talk to you guys next week.